I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, I never thought that our last show where we were actually together was in February of this year, and we are now into professional football season. I can't believe it. We lost the rest of the spring. We lost the summer. And now we're going into fall, and you and I are still doing flight safety detectives in our 1,400-mile social distancing. I got to get in the studio with you, my friend. I have a lot of things to throw at you. We have a lot of bickering to do over issues. I know that we do a little bit of it on the air, but you know it's not the same in, as it is in person when you and I are uh, sparring. So it's always good to see you. It's always good to talk to you, and I'm glad that we are now doing another episode of Flight Safety Detective. So how you doing? I'm doing well. Here in the East, I'm still staying locked up and away from everybody, wearing a mask no matter what I do. So I'm just trying to make sure that I do my part and especially protect myself. It's just not good time out there. Although Massachusetts is uh, sort of looks like it's on the downward trend. I'd rather live in Vermont. Through all this mess they have, as of yesterday, they had 58 deaths in Vermont and only about uh, less than 2,000 cases. It's unbelievable. I had to go up to Alaska, so I was in a variety of different places. I was up at Bethel and Russian Mission and a few other places. At the time when we were in Bethel, you know, they had very few cases. But, of course, uh, while I was there, they had a bit of an outbreak, and so I was fortunate enough to get out in time. But like you, you know, I'm traveling, but, you know, trying to maintain my social distance, wearing my mask to the point where you and I have harped on uh, my little pet peeve that I uh, picked up a couple of weeks ago when I was traveling. And that is, I'm still upset about the fact that there is no standardization in these flight attendant briefings with regard to removing your personal mask to put on the supplemental oxygen mask in the event of a depressurization. And I will say that we did get an email from an airline captain for a major carrier who, of course, questioned that, wait a minute here, what do, why are you guys even bringing this up? It's just logic that if you're going to put the supplemental mask on, that you take your personal mask off. Well, El Capitan, I hate to tell you, but you know, expectations and anticipation in aviation will hurt you or kill you. I respect the fact that you're an airline captain. I respect your opinion. However, 
you have to look at the greater masses. Logic does not always prevail amongst the people sitting behind the cockpit door. You have people that may not speak English. You have people that are first-time flyers. You may have people who are defiant or they have read the message that says, do not take your mask off while you're on the airplane. And they follow those orders to the letter. So you can't expect that logic would dictate that a passenger would pull off their personal mask before putting on supplemental. And, and given the fact that that supplemental oxygen is not pressure breathing, that is, it isn't like the mask in the, in the cockpit, as you would has, have talked about, John, the air that you breathe through that supplemental mask as a passenger is diluted with ambient cabin air. So you try to breathe through that mask with your personal mask on, you're not going to be sucking much of anything. No, that's true. That's true. And, you know, we can't even get common sense on many of the pilots, never mind the passengers. Yeah, I know. And it's just frustrating. That's here and there. But uh, if you're going to be on an airplane, you're going to be traveling as a passenger. Just remember that if that supplemental oxygen mask comes down, you got to remove your personal mask because that, that supplemental mask has got to fit tight on your face for it to do you any good. Given that, you and I have entered into numerous discussions over the years, and of course, uh, we've done several podcasts in the recent past with regard to either mechanics having done something or not done something to an aircraft that resulted in a serious incident or accident. Of course, we have dissected a number of accidents where the pilot has put himself or herself into a position of jeopardy to cause the accident. But you decided that you'd go hunting for an accident, and uh, you found one where we have both a pilot and a mechanic involved in the same accident. I'm ready to, to start talking because I think that it's, uh, it's definitely a worthwhile subject because it happens to all of us that own an aircraft and have the potential for uh, getting a little antsy and wanting the airplane out of maintenance. So I'm glad that you found this accident and we're going to talk about it. It's relevant uh, because it is a single-engine Cessna 177 Cardinal. It's really a shame that more people don't take into consideration the fact that pilots and mechanics rely upon each other. And then we have so many other people in and around the system that can impact it as well. So what I found was an airplane that crashed coming out of a, a uh, annual inspection where there was a bunch of work done on the airplane. But on Friday afternoon, the airplane was set to deliver on Saturday afternoon. On Friday afternoon, the only thing left to do was a run-up on the engine and to check all the fluids and make sure there was no leaks and so on and so on. The IA was not the one that was going to do the run-up. He had another mechanic in the facility that was going to come in on Saturday and do the run-up, close it up, and release the airplane. So with that in mind, the IA did something that was really stupid, and that was that he signed off the logbook, all the work completed except for the job card, the task document, that had the signature required for the run-up, and the checks for leaks, and so on and so on. And they all went home Friday night, and Saturday morning, bright and early, the pilot shows up for his airplane. And the mechanic's not there yet, because it is really early. But the, the line people are there, 
and he convinces the line people to, to go back into the shop where the airplane was. And they find the airplane with the cowling off and it's buried in the back of behind two or three different airplanes. And he works with the line boy and, and pulls the airplanes out of the way to get his airplane out. And then they go rummaging through the facility and they actually manage to get into the locked office and found the logbooks all signed off. So he takes the logbooks, puts them in the airplane. He had already, uh, I believe he had already put the cowling on, on the airplane. And he goes out, starts it up, runs it up. Everything seems fine and proceeds to take off. It doesn't go very far and he crashes and kills himself. And the thing that amazed me, John, well, the, this whole accident amazed me. But here you got a guy, and this pilot wasn't just a student pilot or a, a newly minted private pilot or even a new aircraft owner. This guy held an ATP. I mean, when you think about, and he had well over 6,000 hours, pushing 7,000 hours. When you have a guy like that who has that level of understanding with regard to aviation, especially with regard to the maintenance and, and that kind of thing, to be that impatient where you would just take it upon yourself, one, to go pull the airplane out yourself, two, rummage through a organization's office hunting down your logbooks without making a phone call, talking to the mechanic, going, hey, I just happened to be here at the airport. What's the status of the airplane? Can we get it out tonight or, you know, first thing tomorrow? He just takes it upon himself to, you know, cowboy it and gets, a, unfortunately, an unknowing line guy who is probably young, who didn't understand it, and, you know, got him to be complicit in trying to uh, get this guy's airplane out. And like you said, I mean, he does take it out. The lineman who happened to be standing there watched the pilot do a pre-flight. So, okay, he did at least follow some basic procedure. But he had, a, he had problems starting the engine. The lineman reported that he heard backfiring and popping multiple times. But the engine then finally did start and the pilot taxied out. But like you said, there were a lot of witnesses who, when they observed the airplane not at a very high altitude, said there was no engine noise, i.e. that engine had quit somewhere in that takeoff uh, climb-out sequence. And unfortunately, they watched it uh, strike some trees, come apart in the trees, and then, of course, hit the ground and, uh, and, and the pilot was killed. Again, this is a single-engine Cessna Cardinal. And a lot of folks, there, and we'll have a discussion about this in the future, but the proverbial impossible turn, that is, you know, a lot of people will, when they lose the engine, they'll try and turn back, come back to the, the piece of pavement they just took off from because they don't want to damage the airplane. I don't believe this particular pilot had that opportunity because he didn't get very high. So the only place he could go was straight. And unfortunately, there were a line of trees at the, at the end of the runway. But to put yourself as a pilot, especially as an, a, a supposed accomplished pilot holding an ATP, making that kind of decision and, and just taking it upon yourself to, to do things with an aircraft that, one, 
you know, okay, so the logbook happened to be signed off. And like you said, that was probably the worst thing that this mechanic could have done is it had everything signed off prematurely, but nobody could predict that this guy was going to come in and assume that the airplane was returned to service. But the fact is, is that this guy breached the highest duties of personal care in trying to do something with this aircraft without really understanding whether or not the airplane was fit to fly. You know, Greg, one of the things that that I shook my head with this this was uh, when I learned to fly, and of course it was a long time ago and it was uh, a different type of airplane, and it uh, required me to start the engine outside of the airplane, pull the prop. And I was taught that after you get it running and before you pull the chocks, because I was also taught to chalk both main gear, and when it's running, to take a good look at the engine and look for any leaks. And on, of course, it was a J2 or J3. I graduated to a J3. I was going to say, what were you doing? Flying with the Wright brothers or what? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Grass strip tail dragger was wonderful flying. <laughs> wonderful. No radios. It was uh, really fun flying. But anyway, I was taught to, to always look. Look around, look for any leakage after you start the engine. And when you pull the chocks, I always remember looking up at the bottom of the cowling just to make sure there was nothing leaking out the bottom of the cowling. And then pull the chalk on one side and, and then go to the other side, pull the chalk and jump in the airplane. Don't give it a chance to go anywhere. As the investigation went on, the telltale sign of what may have caused or contributed to the failure of the engine was the fact that there was no oil found in the engine block or even in the um, oil filter and areas where you'd expect to see substantial amounts of, of oil. And the thing that amazes me, John, when I was reading this, it's like, well, wait a minute here. If you're doing this pre-flight, the lineman says, hey, I watched this guy do a pre-flight. Where was he in this pre-flight that he thought he checked the oil or believed he checked the oil or, you know, the pilot checked the oil and thought that there was six, seven, eight quarts of oil in it when, in fact, that dipstick would have been dry. That would have been the first telltale sign that, hmm, something's not right here. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. Apparently, he pumped out whatever oil he had right there in the ground because there was an oil slick. And they had drips going out uh, the way he taxied out to the runway. So whatever oil was in there, he pumped it out, pumped it on the ground. Apparently, there was a line loose on, on the, the oil cooler. Yeah, and that's why I would have expected that while the engine, you know, when you did start it, yeah, it was going to start pumping it overboard, in, you know, pretty darn fast. Of course, you have other tools available to you in the aircraft that's going to tell you something's wrong. Of course, you got oil pressure and oil temp gauges, which you should be checking not only after you start to see that things are starting to come in the green, but when you go out and do your pre-flight run-up, you know, you're going to be running the engine at high power or a higher power. You're going to, of course, see if the pressure has come up, see if the temperatures are stable. And then, of course, you're going to be looking at cylinder head temperature and exhaust gas temperature to see are those normal because if you don't have any oil in there things are going to heat up real quick and it's going to be evident 
even quicker. You know, I wonder how many pilots realize that how much of the cooling system depends upon the oil in the engine. I mean, in an automotive engine, the oil carries away some 50-60% of the heat. In an air-cooled engine, it probably carries away more. So it's amazing that he didn't see those high temperatures immediately. Yeah, and but, you know, you, you can start to surmise then, of course, that given the fact that he was already in a hurry when he got to the airport to get the airplane out of Hawk and go fly it, how thorough and how plugged in was he to all the things that we're talking about? You know, is it one of those issues where it's kick the tires, light the fire, and let's go without really being plugged into the aircraft? And the bigger thing is, I mean, as much as I trust my mechanics when they work on my airplane, I always had a discussion. What'd you do? Even if it was just an annual inspection, which this was, I said, what did you do? What did you touch? Because I want to know what they touched in the event something goes wrong. I either have an ability to troubleshoot it or I know I've got to, you know, make sure that I do things two and three times before I commit myself to flying the airplane. As a mechanic, we always, when somebody comes in with a problem, we always go back, look at the book, and question the pilot if we can as to who's worked on the airplane and what have they done. For that very reason, because usually if someone has worked on the system, that's the first place you go look for a problem. And you and I have had enough uh, investigations. Like I said, I trust my mechanic implicitly, but I don't trust him. You know, the old Reagan saying, trust but verify, because you don't know what was left undone. And in this particular instance, yeah, they were going to do an engine run-up, but it's obvious that either something broke or wasn't attached prior to finishing all of the work. And, you know, an engine run-up would have, of course, identified it under controlled circumstances. But here you have a pilot who's not plugged in who is trying to just, you know, take the airplane. Yeah. I mean, coming out of maintenance, I mean, that's that's that, you know, little pit in the bottom of your stomach because you just don't know if something's going to happen because the airplane is coming out of maintenance. You don't know. You aren't looking at everything the mechanic has done or touched and every nut and bolt has been torqued and, and safety wired and everything else. So you do have a level of trust. But you also have to be mentally prepared that in the event something happens, you got plan B. Yes. Yes. So there's a reason why we run airplanes after maintenance. And that's for the very reason that things may not have been connected. Things may not be right. You know, the magnetos might have been touched and tweaked a little bit. And now it's not running right. It's running rough or not running at all. That's why you have all these after maintenance checks that have to be accomplished. And it's just crazy that someone would jump in. Now, I, I was told that this guy had made plans to, to meet some people over in Maine early in the afternoon. But the, but the FBO, the maintenance folks, said that this airplane wasn't supposed to be delivered until like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's, uh, he, he was pushing it from the beginning. So now you got a guy who's committed to something and he's decided that, you know, well, if they're not going to work on my schedule, then I'm going to go, you know, make it happen. Um, And 
you know, look, I've owned a number of airplanes over the years and it's kind of like my car. When I walk up to my car, I usually walk up to the car if I can on the right side because I look down to see if the tires are, are inflated. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of my little quasi pre-flight for my car because I don't want to be driving away, which I had the other day, as a matter of fact, a tire go flat on me. I knew that the tire pressure, I could see that it was low and I drove away and everything was fine. And then, of course, the tire pressure, low pressure light came on. And next thing I know, it's going flat. You know, it's little things like that. When I taxi the airplane out of the spot, unless I can go straight ahead, which if where I park my airplanes, I usually can't. I mean, as I make those turns, I always look back into the tie down one to make sure that the chocks are still there, that they didn't get hung up somewhere, that the tie down chains aren't, you know, wrapped around the, <laughs> the landing gear or something. But I want to make sure that I don't have a big spot back there, such as an oil spot or a fuel spot or anything else. It doesn't take that, that long to just take a glance back and go, Hmm, man, what the heck is all that oil over there? Or what's that big spot over there? You know, because it wasn't there when I pre-flighted the airplane. Yeah, that's all part of, of what should be common sense, but it's not common sense. And, and getting back to the comments that we just had from that pilot at the beginning of the show, I mean, you can't assume that everybody has common sense. You just can't assume it. And in this case, we have a couple of individuals who exercised poor judgment. The maintenance guy, the IA who signed off the work before it was completed, relying upon a mechanic that was going to come in and run the airplane and fix anything that was wrong. That's not the way to do business. And then then you have a pilot pushing the line. Kid, it's a Saturday. It's a Saturday morning, so you know you don't have the senior guys on. You have the relatively junior people on on the weekends. So he's probably trying to provide good customer service and help this pilot out to try to get his airplane out. I mean, what did they think about the airplane being buried in in the hangar? Yeah. I mean, there may have been a reason why the thing was buried in the hangar and they had to move three or four airplanes to get it out. Exactly. I mean, that's usually telling it just in itself without anything else. You know, they didn't plan on that thing moving anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's just, it, it is crazy. Now, the one thing that is in this report that is very disturbing is the findings of the drugs that were detected when they did the uh, toxicology on the pilot. Not only did it come back positive for amphetamine, but it also came back positive for marijuana. And it is apparent, based on the way this report is written, that this pilot was under the influence of illicit drugs to the extent we don't know, but based on the numbers that are cited in the report, it did have some level of influence. And these types of drugs, as you and I both know, because we have done accidents where drugs have been found and they've been a cause or a factor of the accident, and that is that this influences bad decision-making, you know, little overconfidence. You have this level of euphoria and the fact that you can do anything. And then, of course, your motor skills are slowed down. So now you have an engine failure, and now you're going to be not only a half a step behind, but probably a full step behind what to do, when to do it, how to perform, how to execute, how to act and act in a timely manner. 
So now you have all of these issues that have compounded in a very short period of time. It's just disturbing to see, again, this pilot with these ratings and certificates to have this kind of uh, toxicology result, which it's evident that it in some way, shape, or form contributed to his demise. Yeah, and it's just crazy with the, all the facts to this. I mean, maintenance screw up, pilot screw up, the drugs. He was probably pottying the night before, and what we was found in his blood was what was left. But he must have been apprehensive for the line guy to be uh, so accommodating. So he must have been pushing on him, you know, a little hyper. Get my airplane out, get my airplane out. Yep, exactly. Well, I think that, you know, the lessons here are the fact that you can't take it upon yourself because a pilot can't return the airplane to service in this particular regard. The airplane was down for an annual inspection. And again, while the, the maintenance person, the technician did sign off the logbooks in anticipation that the airplane was going to be returned to service, it's obvious that it was not ready to go. And there wasn't very good communication between the pilot owner and, of course, uh, the maintenance shop or the maintenance technician. And if the pilot was aware that the airplane wasn't going to be ready until later in the day, then he should have made a phone call to find out, one, hey, can you speed things up? Can you get things done in the morning because I need to be somewhere in the afternoon? Or the pilot should have made alternate arrangements. But that's easy to say sitting here after the fact and we can dissect it but i think that you know one of the things that i've seen and that i did with one of my airplanes years ago is i used to put a card up in the windshield it was red and green and when the airplane was down for maintenance it said down for maintenance and the card was put up on the uh on the instrument panel so that anybody walking by looking in the windscreen would see this red card and then when uh, the airplane was ready to go, the mechanic took the card out of the windscreen, which said, okay, they've done all their, their write-ups in the logbook. Everything is good to go. The airplane's returned to service. And they take the card out of the window, which let me know that the airplane was good to go. I mean, little things like that, that could have been the difference between life and death in this particular instance, a phone call better line of communication that unfortunately is sorely lacking i've picked up an airplane i picked up my airplane where the, the mechanic had finished the work and said hey by the time you get here i'm going to be gone i'm just going to park the airplane in a tie down on the ramp and i'll leave the keys with the fbo well that's okay that was fine and you know i ended up picking up the airplane but before i i started it before i got near it I grilled him on the phone as to what he did with the airplane, what he touched, and you know what they found, what they replaced, things like that. I mean, it is all about sharing information and understanding, of course, your airplane and what has been done to your airplane. When I was with the uh, safety officer for that 135 that I worked for, I used to oftentimes take the pilots aside, especially the co-pilots, and talk about the walk-arounds. Oftentimes, they would come back at me, and I'd tell them, open the panel and look around. And they'd, they'd be looking in on, on a, like a panel with a, 
hydraulics where the APU was. And he would tell me, he'd say, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what all these lines do and where all these wires go. And I would tell him, you're not concerned about that. You're looking for something obvious. You're looking for the screwdriver that was left behind, the wrench that was left behind, a rag that was left behind, or an obvious line that's disconnected. You're not required and not expected to know what all these lines connect to and the reason why they're in there. You're just looking for something obvious. And if you do that every time you're going to go flying, after a little while, you are going to know what's going on in that. You're going to be able to look, look very quickly and see something that's not right. Especially knowing that the airplane came out of maintenance. It's one thing when you're doing a pre-flight and, you know, the airplane has been operating, you know, 50 hours since maintenance. That's one thing. But this airplane is coming right out of the hangar. And that's the time where you have to have heightened senses. You have to be skeptical that everything was done, everything was done properly, everything is connected, and that that airplane is, in fact, good to go. And I don't care, I, like you said, I mean, okay, yeah, you may not know what every line is, every wire is in there. You just want to make sure that it's hooked to something. Many years ago, I, I was uh, present when a major airline, I almost mentioned the name of the airline, a major airline took an airplane, big airplane, out of a maintenance facility. It had been in there for oh, at least 30 days, if I remember right. They had a lot of work done to it. And while the airplane was parked, it was outside when we showed up. While it was outside and they put power on it, the crew went through what they call an enhanced pre-flight check. There was company policy. I never noticed how many pages. There was quite a few pages to it. And they would go down the pages, both sitting in the cockpit, checking things, walking around the airplane, looking for things. And obviously, it was problems that they have had in the previously that they've recorded and just put them down there so the pilots can take a look at it before they go. And then I've been in facilities where another outfit came in and, like you said, jumped in the cockpit and lit the fire and get, get me out of here. And we actually had a, a DC-8 leave a maintenance facility in, I believe it was Tennessee, and it was going back to the like Ohio, maybe Wilmington or Dayton, because it was a cargo airplane. And it just made it over the line into Virginia and crashed and killed the crew, as well as one or two mechanics that were there were catching a ride back home. It was the result of work that was done on the airplane or not done properly. And you and I have talked in the past, and I can't remember if we've touched on it in a previous podcast, but the accident at Eagle Lake, Texas, where the airplane had been in for maintenance, maintenance guys were changing shifts, the communication wasn't very good, the whole elevator assembly, and it was a T-tailed airplane, the whole elevator assembly was basically unzipped, screws hadn't been all replaced after inspections and repairs, and they returned the airplane to the gate put a bunch of people on it, pilots take off, and horizontal stabilizer comes apart. Yeah, surprise, surprise. He didn't know what he had and crashed. 47 screws were left off. At one point, while I was, while I still had access, easy access to all the records, I pulled up 50 accidents in the maybe previous 25 years to when I went on the, on the board that had maintenance causes. And I used to argue internally Actually, the arguing was pleading that we need to look beyond 
just call it a maintenance accident and walk away. We analyze pilot activity, pilot actions, everything they do, including the 72 hours before they came to work and so on and so on. And we do none of that in the maintenance department, none of it. And I wonder how many of those 50 accidents or other accidents that uh, I wasn't able to uncover could have been prevented if we started doing that work at the same time we started doing it on the flight deck and maybe had some of these problems corrected. I mean, fatigue. We got mechanics working. I mean, I used to work with people that would work around the clock. In fact, when I was like 20, I would I worked 38 hours straight one time. 38 hours straight now would put me in the coffin. Yeah. That's where mistakes happen. That's where items or tasks don't get done. And if they do get done, they may not be done properly. For the general aviation pilots, getting an airplane out of maintenance, really understanding what you're looking at. Like in this case, you lost your oil. I mean, besides the engine instruments and that kind of stuff, when you start doing your run-up and you cycle a propeller, a constant speed prop, it takes oil to move that prop. And so, of course, if you have some sort of malfunction with the prop as you're cycling it, yeah, probably know that you got a problem and it's probably related to oil. These are the kinds of things that if you really don't understand your airplane or understand the systems of your airplane, you could miss telltale signs that if they aren't corrected or if you try to do the flight with these deficiencies, you're going to find yourself in a place that you don't want to be. For sure. Servo control. Engine start panel. For takeaways, let's talk about takeaways here for the people that are listening. For any mechanics that are listening, the first and most obvious takeaway is do not sign anything off as completed until you know it is completed. Right? In the documentation, make sure that you are, have a complete description of the work that you did. And two reasons go with that. Oftentimes, if a, a problem occurs later on and you're not very clear on what you did, you may get accused and dragged before the FAA and, and administrative law judges for work that you may not accomplish because your signature and description of the work that's done was not clear. And I, I myself was guilty of this very often, especially in the early years working. And in, in the airline business, we called it short signing. And you would only sign the work you would you had done. You just signed the last thing you did. And you may have done 10 steps and just signed for the last one. And after observing a few guys getting dragged through the system and going before the judge, I changed my ways that the, the sign-offs then had to be a little more complete. Did I miss things? I'm sure I did. But at least I was, was more focused on putting the details into the sign-off. So it's your signature. You're certifying with everything you have, including it might be your house and, and everything you own, because these lawsuits today just pop up over and they sue everybody and anybody. You need to be sure it's clear in what you did. Most mechanics I know will stand up for what they did, but boy, do they take it bad when they have to, to take a hit for something that somebody else did because they weren't clear in what they did for a sign-off describing the work that they did. Well, every time that I've ever got my airplane out of maintenance, I had to get it out of hock. I had to pay for it before they gave me the keys. Yeah, you know, that's unsaid here. I wonder if that was part of the, what's going on here. 
was the chase going to be on? He's got his airplane. He's out of there, and I was, you know, the check is in the mail type thing. I wonder. I wonder if that was uh, played a role here. Of course, that the NTSB would not look at that, and it's not mentioned anywhere in the report. The other thing is with one of the mechanics that used to work on my airplane, he used to lock the logbooks in his safe. One just from a protection standpoint, because it was a fireproof safe, so if something happened, the logbooks were protected. But two, you weren't getting those books back until he was done or she was done with the work, and you paid for it. Yep, that's right. That's right. Well, I'll guarantee you this guy won't sign off a logbook, and I'll guarantee you also that he probably now has a safe, because it was it, they were in a locked office, but it wasn't you know a secure I don't know how they got in there, whether he talked the line guy into finding a key or did they just push on the door and it gave gave way. This was not a new modern facility. This was a rather old World War II facility. Well, I think the key here is that you, as the pilot owner, because the Federal Aviation Regulations say that you, as the pilot owner, are the final authority in determining whether or not the airplane is in a condition for operation. And that would include making sure that the airplane has been properly returned to service with proper sign-offs and that everything is good to go. That is your responsibility. That is not a deferrable responsibility to the mechanic. And you can't blame the mechanic for this accident. This pilot took an airplane that had not been formally returned to service, regardless of the fact that the logbook had been signed off. It's obvious that work hadn't been completed. Right. He should not have done it that way, but, uh, you know, it's tragedy. It's unfortunate. So for the pilot, what what are the takeaways for a pilot? We didn't really touch on that. We talked, we, you just talked about the regulatory responsibility for the airworthiness being accomplished and signed off. But uh, you talked about some common sense ones, like looking back when you taxi, out of your, your taxi spot to see. I think the biggest thing is making sure that, one, if your airplane's coming out of maintenance, you know exactly what has been done. You talk to the mechanic who turned the wrenches. You want to know. If they've done something with the flight controls, you definitely want to know what was done because you can't see all your flight control surfaces back there. You go out there, you exercise it, you turn the control yoke left and right, and you push and pull, and you kick the rudder pedals. But a lot of airplanes, you can't look out the window and see those flight controls moving. So you want to make sure because as soon as you take your start your takeoff roll and you pull back and that airplane's flying and you got to correct for a crosswind. And next thing you know, you're turning right or think you're turning right and the airplane's going left. You got a you got a flight control issue. So it, you really need to be educated. You have to be plugged in. And if possible, talk to the mechanic about what it was he or she did. The other thing, of course, is making sure that the logbooks are properly signed off. You're, you know, you're in the position, John, where th the fact is, is that mechanics, a lot of mechanics, unfortunately, don't put the proper sign-offs in the logbooks. They defer to a work order or whatever. But it is, again, the pilot's responsibility to make sure that those logbooks have been signed off properly before the airplane is in an airworthy condition or considered to be an airworthy condition. Yeah, you raise a good point, too, that, that uh, many people don't realize that the logbooks have to be kept forever, but the work orders can go away 
after a year or two. So you lose what was done. That's a big problem. Today for leasing companies, they have they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars when they bring a big airplane back trying to identify the work that's done and the, the condition, the status, and so on. Even though they require by contract the airline and their maintenance providers to give them all that documentation, boy, it gets lost in the shuffle. And then, as we talked earlier, you may do a pre-flight, and, and of course, you need the uh, the engine running to pressurize the oil system and everything else. So while it may look good in a static condition, you want to make sure, you want to look back, <laughs> that when you pull out of that, that parking space, that tie-down area, that you haven't left a big puddle of something back there, hydraulic fluid, engine oil, fuel, or any other fluid, because it may have taken the engine to be started for the system to pressurize enough. And if there is a line that is not hooked up, like in this particular instance, it's now blowing oil overboard. And if you look back, they would have seen that there was a trail of oil and and that kind of stuff, as well as all the other telltale signs with all the engine instruments and, and those kinds of things. So I think for being a pilot, an owner pilot, or just a pilot, that is, you have to be plugged in because it is your responsibility to make sure that that airplane is fit to fly. Yes. And, you know, we have some news to announce, Greg. Yes, we do, John. You know, we talk about accidents like this, and we have talked about that from an insurance perspective. Well, we want to announce, and we're going to be uh, working on our uh, discussions and um, our spots for our newest sponsor, which is Avemco Insurance. And as we get into into our relationship with Avemco, I had a lot of my airplanes insured with Avemco. And so I'll relate some personal stories uh, with my relationship with Avemco. But we are just ecstatic that, uh, that they have decided to join the flight safety detective team and that they are uh, going to be one of our prime sponsors. So stay tuned for future podcasts as we get into it and we start talking uh, about Avemco and, and the benefits of, of them as an insurance company on your aircraft. So that's exciting, and we're looking forward to additional sponsors in the near future as well. So that's a big kick for us because these are the kinds of things that you and I have talked about in previous shows so that we can take our show to the next level. And then again, hopefully when this COVID thing settles down, you and I are going to at least be in the same studio so we can get our YouTube channel up and cranking and um, and people can actually see us as we try to dissect these accidents and, and talk about the safety issues that we do in every podcast. And of course, I know that we have a lot of viewers who are viewers. See, I'm already thinking they should be viewers, but they're listeners. They're sending us emails asking us when that's going to happen. And of course, they're providing us some really good story ideas or at least discussion points for future shows. So, yeah, and looking at, and you know, after they, they talk to us, looking at who they are, Avemco, they've been writing insurance for the GA community for 60 years. Yes. That's almost as many years as I've been in the business. Well, yeah, it's just about the same amount. And when you look at it, they've been a very steady state aviation insurance company 
a lot of insurance companies in the aviation business have been affected by the volatile markets. Rates go well up, you know, in the bad times and, you know, in the good times, they tend to come down. Avemco has basically been pretty steady state and uh, and we're going to talk about why they have been so successful as we start promoting them as our sponsor. So stay tuned. But we do appreciate all the emails that we have gotten. Uh, we got some good storylines that uh, we're going to be talking about. Of course, the return of the 737 MAX to service. We will be talking about that as well and a couple of issues that listeners have written and asked us to talk about. With that being said, we always appreciate your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. If you don't like what John and I are talking about, give us an idea of what you want to hear. You can always contact us via email at our at our flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com email. And uh, we read everything. We try to get back to everybody. And we appreciate the feedback because it helps us. And we would also appreciate you on your local podcast provider, whatever that is, giving us a five-star rating or a big thumbs up or whatever the little emojicon or icon are that, that give us good ratings as well. So with that being said, my friend, it is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to talk to you um, and hopefully – the listeners, pilot community, the owner community, and of course, the aviation community have benefited from this particular podcast. Yes, I agree. The points that we make can save lives. We've been around a long time. We've seen a lot of people's mistakes. We're bringing them up here so that other people can see them and benefit from them. Most people, when they realize that someone else has made a mistake doing something that they do regularly, will benefit from it. They will remember that somebody made a mistake. And that's mechanics and pilots. And I, I've got many stories about mechanics. And when we started doing some human factors work on stories that came up with people that made mistakes and how we fixed them. So we'll be getting into those over time. But it is great to see that, uh, that Avemco is going to help us with content and uh, we're talking about something else with them that uh, will be exciting for the GA community as well. Yeah, nope, I'm looking forward to it. You know, even though the COVID has brought a lot of us down and, and sheltered us in place in, in many respects, the good thing is, is that uh, there's still a lot of positive aspects in aviation and the fact that we need to be talking about these safety issues, educating our, our listeners and um, bringing a lot of these issues to light that really don't get the attention they deserve. So I always appreciate the, our conversations, John. I look forward to our next episode of Flight Safety Detective. So I will leave you with the last word. And as usual, the last word is thank you for listening. If you can help with some sponsorships, Patreon works, makes it easy to donate. And please pay attention to what we've talked about in these accidents and take heed and fly safe and be safe in your life. We're not out of this COVID mess yet. So be safe in your personal life and be safe whenever you decide to go flying. Take care, my friend. Hopefully see you soon. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com. 
or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.